it's important to study. Now, some of your parents are thinking, I hope my child is listening. But you know, really, it's important for all of us to study. And specifically, it's important for you and I to study the ways of God. Because when we study God and His ways, we grow closer to Him, we understand who He is better, and we give Him the the worship that He is due. So this morning as we study Joshua chapter 3, we are going to study together the ways of God. It's time for God's people to rise up and cross the Jordan River. And in our passage this morning, we're going to see how God parts the waters of the Jordan River to allow Israel to walk across on dry land. And we're going to consider together why God did that in Joshua chapter 3. So turn there with me. Joshua chapter 3. We'll begin reading in verse 1. I'm going to ask you this morning if you're physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. I want to thank our music team this morning. Marvelous job as always. Pray for our worship pastor, Travis, and his wife, Nikki, their son, Carter Ray. They are in Florida. But don't worry about them. They were at the beach yesterday, so they're fine. But, uh, but pray for them. They'll be back with us uh, this week. Joshua chapter 3, verse 1. The Bible says, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before." Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pause in this moment to to confess our need for you. Lord, we believe with all of our hearts that all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. So Lord, as your word goes forth, will you accompany the preaching of your word by your Spirit? And Holy Spirit of God, would you open the eyes of our hearts, that we would see the truths of your word clearly and be moved by them. Spirit of God, would you stir our hearts, that we would be inclined to respond to what you show us. Help us to understand something more today, Lord, of your ways. Help us to lift up the mighty name of Jesus in this place. And Lord, we'll thank you for that grace. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Again, in Joshua 3, we are studying the ways of God. And this is important. I'm reminded of what Moses prayed over in Exodus chapter 33. As they had followed the Lord out of Egyptian bondage and slavery. We're getting ready to go towards the promised land. Moses prays, show me now your ways. 
that I may know you. Moses wanted to know something more of the ways of God. And as we study Joshua 3, we will come to know more of the ways of God. And basically what I want to share with you today is this. I want to share with you five reasons that the Lord parted the waters of the Jordan. Five reasons the Lord parted the waters of the Jordan. So again, we learn about God's way. So here's reason number one, that God parted the waters of the Jordan River. You ready? This is deep. You ready? So Israel could get to the other side. Why did the chicken cross the road? To get to the other side. Why did God part the waters of the Jordan River? So Israel could get across. God is not uh, a capricious God. God always has purpose and meaning in what he does. And God wants his people to cross the Jordan River and take possession of the promised land. Uh, look what it says there in verse 1. So uh, Joshua was early in the morning and they set out from Shittim. They came to the Jordan. He and all the people of Israel and lodged there before they passed over. And at the end of this chapter, verse 17, it says, Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. So that was one of the reasons God parted the waters of the Jordan so they could get across. And there's something a little bit more interesting here at play as we think about why God did this. And it didn't come to me until my Bible reading, my own personal Bible reading, this past week as I was reading through the book of Numbers. But notice what it says there in verse 1. Joshua rose early in the morning and they set out from Shittim. Now, uh, the word Shittim means place of acacia trees. This was where Israel was camped out. And I didn't think much about that location until I read Numbers chapter 25. And in Numbers chapter 25, uh, under Moses' leadership, Israel had come to Shittim, uh, just on the other side of the Jordan from the Promised Land. And what's interesting about Numbers is right before that chapter, we see that there was a king named Balak, the king of Moab, that wanted to curse the Israelites because he considered them a threat. And so Balak, this king, hires this prophet guy, he's kind of mysterious, named Balaam. He says, Balaam, I want you to curse the people of Israel. And so Balaam, he's a mercenary, he's going to do it for money. And so he goes to a, a mountaintop to oversee the nation of Israel. He's going to curse them to get his money, but God won't allow him to do it. And God protects his people from Balaam's curses. And you think, well, Israel is safe from attacks from without. But there was something else going on with Israel. And in Numbers chapter 25, they're in Shittim, and it says the men of Israel began to look at the women of Moab and th thought, boy, I'd like to have a woman from Moab. They began to chase these women and began to worship their false gods. And before you knew it, they were being led astray into worshiping Baal. It says in Numbers 25, verse 1, While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So as the people hung out in Shittim, they got involved in idol worship, worshiping a false god led astray by the women of Moab. So I believe that that might be in play here in number, or Joshua 3 when God says, Okay, time to get moving. God wanted his people to get moving because there was danger in lingering. There was danger in just hanging out. 
Because they would begin to just look around and look at the nations around them and begin to worship the gods that they worship. God wanted them to follow him into the promised land, across the Jordan River, so they could take possession of the land and live for his glory alone. There was danger in them lingering in Shittim. And guess what? There's danger spiritually for you and for me when we linger. You know, when we linger in inactivity, instead of acting on God's purpose, our lives are prone to turn away from God. When we find ourselves just lingering with no purpose, we're not following the Lord, we're not serving the Lord, then we are prone to look around and begin to pursue idols and false gods. And that's dangerous. God doesn't want his people to linger. He wants us to rise up and follow him wherever he leads, right? You've probably been to a store before and you notice there's a sign on the outside of that store that says, no loitering. You know what loitering is? Loitering is hanging around with no purpose. And business owners know If there's enough folks hanging around with no purpose, if they're loitering, trouble may ensue. And if you and I spiritually find ourselves, listen, hanging around with no purpose, we'll get ourselves into trouble. And so I think there's a very practical thing here. He wanted Israel to get across the river into the promised land, and he wanted them to stop hanging around looking around at the women of Moab to to get into the land he was giving them. And so, why did God part the waters of the Jordan River? So Israel could get to the other side. Secondly, God parted the waters of the Jordan River to confirm his presence. He wants his people to know, I am with you. Now look what happens uh, in verse 1. It says that, Joshua rose early in the morning. They set out from Shittim. They came to the Jordan. He and all the people of Israel and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Then in verse 6, Joshua said to the priest, Take up the Ark of the Covenant. There it is again. And pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. Now it's interesting to note that in chapters 3 and 4, the Ark is mentioned 16 times. 16 times. It's, it, 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 it plays a, a front and center role here in these chapters. If you say, wait, what was the Ark of the Covenant? Well, God instructed his people through Moses to build this wooden box overlaid with gold and to put a gold lid on the top called the mercy seat that had two cherubim with their wings facing one another on top of that box. And that box, the Ark of the Covenant, was to be placed in the middle of the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies. And the people could not come into the Holy of Holies uh, except for the high priest who could come in once a year on the Day of Atonement. And God would cause his presence to come down and rest on the Ark of the Covenant. And the people could see his presence coming down. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that during the daytime, Israel saw his presence as a pillar of cloud. At night, it looked like a his presence looked like a pillar of fire. And God would direct his people 
by causing his presence to move out. And when his presence moved out, they would follow him wherever he led. And so the Ark of the Covenant symbolizes the presence of God among his people. So as he says, hey, follow the Ark, what he's saying is follow me. I am in your midst. I'm the one that is going to part these waters for you. The Ark represented God's presence. And as we think about God's presence, we need to think about God's presence in our own individual lives. Because if we are Christians, if we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, God is present with us. And I want you to think about God's presence in two ways. I want to give you two sentences, but it's the same sentence. But I want to emphasize a different word in that sentence. So here's the first way I want to use this sentence. Remember, God is with you. That word with is a preposition. It's important. If, if God is present in your life, that means he is with you. He was with Israel. And if you're a follower of Christ, God is with you. That's a pretty extraordinary thought. Because his presence is a precious gift. And his presence is greatly needed. Remember over in Exodus when Israel's getting ready to march out and follow the Lord? Moses says, Lord, if your presence doesn't go with us, we don't want to go. We don't want to take one step without you. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you don't have to take one step without God. He is with you all of the time. What a precious gift. God gives you his presence. He is with you. It's one of the titles given to Jesus Christ when he left heaven and came to earth. Emmanuel, God with us. And so, as we think about God's presence, remember God is with you. That's what he wanted Israel to understand. God is with you. But let me share that sentence with you another time, emphasizing a different word. Remember, God is with you. Remember, God is with you. Look what happens in verse 4. He says, Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And so God is saying, through Joshua's leadership, I am with you. My presence is a great gift. You need to understand how special my presence is. But remember, it's God who is among you. Keep your distance. Don't get too close to the ark. Consecrate yourselves. Understand that you are following God. Now we see three things about God in this passage. First of all, we see he's a personal God. Look in verse 3. As soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Now notice there... When it says, Lord your God, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Whenever you see in your English Bible, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is the designation for the name of God. You've heard his name pronounced sometimes as Yahweh. That's the name of God that God gave to his people. It was his covenant name. It symbolized they had a relationship with him. And we're reminded by that, he's called the Lord your God, that God is a personal God. And I want to tell you something amazing. You ready for this? 
if you will embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can have a personal relationship with God. Think about how incredible that is. A personal relationship with God? He's the covenant God of Israel. He's also the God of the new covenant that makes himself known through his son Jesus Christ. And because of Jesus' shed blood, we can be reconciled to a holy God and have a relationship with him. He is the Lord our God. He's a personal God. But secondly, he's the living God. Look in verse 10. Joshua said, here's how you shall know that the living God is among you. He will, that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. In other words, saying, hey, when you see me part the waters of the Jordan River, you will know that God is among you. And not only any God, the living God. You will know the living God is among you. I love that phrase, the living God. It's only used... Uh, three or four times in the Old Testament. And it symbolizes that God is the one true God, the real God, the God that is moving and active in our world. Trent Butler writes, Only Yahweh is active and alive. Only Yahweh intervenes in the affairs of His people. God's actions for His people prove His power and demonstrate the nature of His person. And so who is God? He's the personal God and He is the living God. Let me give you an awesome thought. Right now, we are gathered together to worship. And you know who's meeting here with us? The living God. He's right here in our midst. We are, in a way of speaking, at the throne of grace, worshiping the living God. So he's a personal God, and he's the living God. And and third, he's a sovereign God. Look in verse 11. Behold the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth. Notice that designation for God. The Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Look in verse 13. When the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing. So twice in this passage, God is called the Lord of all the earth. Now notice there the word Lord. It's not capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's capital L, then lowercase o-r-d. Everyone see that? Whenever you see capital L, lowercase o-r-d, that's the translation of the Hebrew word Adonai. And the word Adonai uh, emphasizes God's sovereignty, His lordship, the fact that He is king over all the earth and over all of creation. And so when God here is called the Lord of all the earth, His His sovereignty is being acknowledged. So God is a personal God. He's a living God. He's the sovereign God. And the Lord wanted His people to understand, I am with you, but remember who I am. Listen, I am with you, but keep your distance. Because I'm a living, holy, sovereign God. Let me tell you something about what it means to be a follower of Christ. If you're here today and you're saved, you're born again, you're a Christian, you don't have to keep your distance. You don't have to keep your distance like the people of Israel. 
As a matter of fact, it says over in Hebrews 4, Hebrews 10, because Jesus Christ is our faithful high priest that, that shed his blood for us to wash away our sins. The Bible says you and I can draw near to the throne of grace to find mercy and help in times of need. So we are invited because of Jesus. We are invited to draw near to God. Isn't that awesome? We don't have to keep our distance. We can draw near and enjoy His presence. But, like Israel, we still need to remember who God is. I like the way Warren Wearsby says it. God is our companion as we go through life, but we dare not treat Him like a buddy. He's the living God. He's not the man upstairs. He's the God of the universe. Worthy of our worship. Worthy of our allegiance. Worthy of our reverence and awe. He's not our buddy. He's our friend. Yes, through Christ. He's our Father. Yes, through Christ. But He's God. He's with us. But remember, it's God with us. Live with that respect and reverence and awe for the presence of God in your life. In the year 2000... NBC produced a show that didn't last long, praise the Lord. It was an animated sitcom called God, the Devil, and Bob. It was the name of the show. And on this animated sitcom, God was portrayed as this grandfather-type figure. He had gray hair, gray beard, and he wore a Hawaiian shirt and flip-flops. He was kind of this cool dude kind of God. And that was the, the blasphemous representation of God on this show. And, and a lot of people want to Respond to God like he's our buddy. He's not your buddy. He's the living God. So understand that God is with you. And then learn to tremble at his presence. To understand who he is. And how he is graciously active in your life. That's what reverence is all about. And so... He wanted to demonstrate his presence among his people. The reason I'm going to depart the waters of the Jordan is to remind you I'm with you. There's a third reason that God parted the waters of the Jordan. We're studying his ways to validate Joshua's leadership. Look in verse 7. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel that they may know that I... As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Now, look over in chapter 4, verse 14. We see what happens after the crossing of the Jordan. And by the way, we'll get to chapter 4 next week, which is the 12 memorial stones. You don't want to miss next week. Good stuff next week. Look in verse 14. On that day, the day when God parted the waters of the Jordan and Israel walked across, on that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel and they stood in awe of him just as they stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. As Israel enters the promised land, leadership was going to be key for them. And for them to be successful in claiming the land God had given them, they had to follow their leader. And so what's happening in this passage is God is moving in a dramatic way to let the people know, hey, just like I was with Moses, I am with Joshua. He is validating Joshua's leadership. The parallels are clear, aren't they? When Moses led the people of God out of Egyptian bondage and slavery, God parted what? The Red Sea. 
So the parallel when God parts the Jordan River will be unmistakable. There's another interesting insight I don't have time to get into this morning, but as you read the dates of all this transpiring, the people rose up to cross the Jordan on the 40-year anniversary to the day of when the Israelites prepared the Passover lamb to leave Egypt. There were parallels between the Exodus and God leading Israel over the Jordan River. And God is putting his stamp of approval on Joshua and saying, follow him. He is your leader now. Moses was a great man of God, but you are to follow Joshua. This is not the only time we see God doing this in the scripture. Remember the great prophet Elijah, great man of God. God did miraculous things through him. Elijah came to the time when he would be taken into heaven. God revealed him, hey, your life on this earth is, is coming to an end. Elijah one day was walking around with his protege, Elisha. And the Lord has shown Elisha, Elijah's about to, about to be taken away. And so they're walking along, and they come to the Jordan River, and the, the seminary students, the school of the prophets, who are being trained by Elijah and Elisha, they're kind of watching at a distance. They're, you know, they're leaders. And they watch Elijah take off his mantle, and he hits the waters of the Jordan River, and the river parts. And Elijah and Elisha walk across the river. As they're walking along, Elisha says, Well, since you're leaving, I'd love a double portion of your spirit. And Elijah says, I can't give that to you, but if, hey, if you see me leave when I leave, then you'll have a double portion of my spirit. And they're walking along. All of a sudden, from heaven comes this whirlwind of, of fire, of chariots coming down from heaven. And this chariot of fire whisk Elijah away and takes him to heaven. Now that's a way to go to heaven, amen? Amen. A whirlwind and a chariot of fire. Wouldn't that be cool? I mean, what if that happened right? What if a a chariot came by right now and I went to heaven that way? That'd be awesome, right? All right. And Elisha sees Elijah go up into heaven. Now Elijah's gone. The seminary students are all watching Elisha. Okay, I guess you're our leader now, Elisha. Elisha picks up Elijah's mantle. He walks back to the Jordan. And he says this to the Lord. Where is the Lord God of Israel? In other words, God, are you going to be with me the same way you were with Elijah? And he hits the waters with his mantle and the waters part. And he walks across. And the school of the prophets all see this happen. And they know at that moment, hey, Elisha is our leader. God has put his stamp of approval on him now. God, throughout Scripture, validates his leaders. That's what he's doing here in Joshua chapter 3. But there's another thing God's doing here, another reason that God parts the waters of the Jordan, and it is to show his power. To show his power. Look what it says in chapter 3, verse 8. He says... And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here's how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord of all the earth, is passing over before you into the Jordan. And then he says in verse 13, 
When the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. God's going to show him his power. And there's two reasons he wanted his people to know his power. First of all, he wanted them to be confident in his power. He says there, hey, when you're fighting Girgashites and Jebusites, remember how I parted the waters of the Jordan. And that remembrance of my power will give you confidence in the present to fight with courage and valor, knowing that I am with you. He wanted them to be confident in his power. Secondly, he wanted them to be amazed by his power. In verse 5 he says, Consecrate yourselves, tomorrow you will see wonders. And we see how remarkable this miracle is. Look in verse 14. Verse 14. It says, When the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. That's parenthetical. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. Some scholars believe Adam was about 20 miles north of where the Israelites were located here. And those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. What's God doing here? He's amazing them by his power. And notice the parenthetical note in verse 15. Now the Jordan overflows its banks throughout the time of harvest. The timing here is interesting. As a matter of fact, the timing of this miracle accentuates God's power. Because we need to understand that the Jordan was, was not some trickling little brook that they crossed. During most times of the year, scholars believe the Jordan River was about 100 feet wide. During the spring harvest... When the snows melted on the mountains and waters began to rush down into the river basin, the Jordan River could flood to over a mile wide in some places. It's not some trickling little brook. This is a, 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 a river that is raging and they had to get across. And so the writer of Joshua reminds us this took place during the time of the spring harvest when the Jordan was at its fullest. Dale Ralph Davis writes this, Such detail is important. When was it that God led Israel through the Jordan? Precisely at the time of year when such a feat looked and was impossible. Why does the God of the Bible insist on fording the river at the most unpropitious time? I'm not sure, Davis writes, but this is a marked tendency in his ways. Now listen. Yahweh delights to show his might in the face of utter helplessness. Apparently so that we cannot help seeing that we contribute nothing to our deliverance. In other words, listen to this. God often, we're studying God's ways. God often waits, biblically, church history, human history, God often waits until times are at their most desperate before he moves. You ever been impatient with God before? God, why don't you do something? 
I'm ready for you to move now. And God tarries. And God waits. And you get more and more desperate and more and more helpless. Maybe it's because when he does move, you know it's him moving. There was no question in the nation of Israel. It's it's the spring harvest. The river's a mile wide in some places. The only way we can get across is if God does it. And God did it. To show them his power. Now, I've been in the Jordan River before, literally in the Jordan River. Some of you I baptized in the Jordan River. And uh, when we were there, it wasn't a raging torrent. It, it's been controlled for agriculture, so it wasn't uh, that wide. It was cold, really cold. And while I was baptizing, there were catfish nibbling on my heels. But that's an entirely different story. But during our time in Israel, I had a great time with my wife and with the folks from our church that went. It's a great trip. During our time in Israel, I only bought one souvenir. One souvenir. I, I bought this souvenir made out of olive wood. And all it is, it's on my desk in my office. All it is is a basket made out of, you know, uh, carved out of wood. It looks like a basket. In the basket, there are uh, five loaves of bread and two fish. Now, I keep that on my desk because I love what it reminds me of. It reminds me of the story of the feeding of the 5,000. In all four Gospels, this miracle is mentioned. The only miracle of Jesus mentioned in all four Gospels, the feeding of the 5,000. And you know that story. Jesus waits until times are desperate. It's nighttime. You can't go home and get some food in the marketplace. The markets are closed down. Nobody brought any food with him. All we have is this little boy with five loaves of bread and two fish. And and Jesus wants his disciples to feel their helplessness. Remember what he says? He says, you feed them. He said, we can't feed them. There are thousands of people. We can't feed these folks. So in the midst of their helplessness and desperation, what does Jesus do? He begins to break the bread and have it distributed And miraculously, supernaturally, showing his great power, Jesus feeds all the people there. Breathtaking power, right? But he waited until times were desperate. And if you are feeling desperate, and if you are feeling helpless, you are, listen, you are a prime candidate to see the power of God at work in your life. Don't be dismayed. Don't be afraid. Cry out to God and let Him move with power. And so God moved with power during the flooding of the river to show His greatness to Israel. But there's one final thing I want you to see. Five reasons why God parted the waters of the Jordan so Israel could get to the other side to confirm his presence, to validate Joshua's leadership, to show his power, but fifth and last, to demonstrate his sovereign majesty to the nations. Why did God do this? Well, look with me at the end of chapter 4 of Joshua. We see some insight into why God did this. It says in chapter chapter 4, verse 23, As they're talking about the memorial stones and passing on the story to their children. 
Joshua says, For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over. As the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, there's that parallel, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So that, look in verse 24, so that all the peoples, all the people groups, every tribe, tongue, and language, all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Wow. You know what the Lord's saying? I want the nations to hear of this event. I want them to hear of my power. I want them to understand who I am so they will give me the worship that I truly deserve. And that's why God is working the way he works in the world. He wants the nations to know of his power and his nature so they will give him the worship he alone deserves. Look with me very quickly in Psalm 96. I love this psalm because it hones in on this theme. Psalm 96, verse 3. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Verse 9, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. In other words, God does what He does. To show who he is. God does what he does to show who he is. And in this passage in Joshua, he not only wants Israel to understand who he is, he wants the nations to understand who he is. Why? So they'll worship him. You know, God chose Israel to be his people that he would reveal his name through. Does that mean God didn't care about the other nations? No. God was patient with the other nations. He even made provision in the law. If someone from another nation, a sojourner, comes to live among you, make provision for them. He, he said, you, you welcome people from other nations that come and worship me. That's what God said. But if there is a nation of people that choose not to worship me, and they remain in my idolatry, they will experience my wrath. And that's what he wants the people to understand. He's putting the people on notice. The living God is coming among you. You can worship him, or you can be broken by him. But you will deal with the living God. God does what he does to show who he is. And here's the reality for all the nations today. And and everyone in this room, here's the reality. You ready? Every one of us will either worship the one true God or they will be judged by the one true God. Every one of us. There's no escaping that reality. You'll either worship Him and build your life upon the cornerstone 
or you'll be broken under the wrath of God. Everyone in this room. And the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus is the only way to flee from God's wrath. The only way. If you want to worship Him in spirit and in truth and know Him in a personal way, Jesus died for your sins. So when you embrace Him as Lord and Savior, He will wash away your sins, remove that barrier of impurity between you and a holy God, and then He will reconcile you to God so you can know Him in a personal way. Only Christ can do that. Only Christ died for your sins. Only Christ defeated death. But if you choose to turn your back to Christ, you will stand before God one day. And you will experience His devastating wrath and judgment for all of eternity. You see, God does what He does. In the Bible, in church history, in human history, God does what He does to show who He is. He is not a God to trifle with. Over in Ezekiel, there's a striking passage. As Ezekiel's given this vision of the people of Israel. The elders of the people turn their back to God. That's a dangerous thing to turn your back to God. Jesus is the only way to be saved from his wrath. And God is moving here in Joshua, you know, parting the waters of the Jordan to show who he is, to put the nations on notice. I was thinking about law enforcement officers. You ever been pulled over? Uh, before anybody here been pulled over? Just, just me? Okay, three of you. That's good. Okay, good. We have a law-abiding group in here today. That's great. Hey, one day I was pulled over by a church member who shall remain nameless, blue lights and everything. He walked up to my truck and said, do you have so-and-so's number? I was like, text me. Don't pull me over anyway. If you want to know who that was, I'll tell you after the service. But anyway, not a good feeling. But hey, when you're pulled over... And the law enforcement officer walks up to your vehicle. They have a badge on, right? I've always wanted a badge. They have a badge on. And that badge is to let you know who they are. Listen. So you'll make a wise decision. When someone with a badge walks up to your vehicle, it's time to be respectful. You don't drive away until they tell you you can drive away, right? They want you to know who they are. So you can make a wise decision. You know what God's doing here in Joshua as we study the ways of God? He's showing Israel and the nations, this is who I am. Make a wise decision. He's demonstrating his sovereign majesty among the nations. And so here's what I want you to walk away with. As we study the ways of God in Joshua 3 and beyond, studying the ways of God helps us to know him better. And worship Him more fully. Isn't that what the Christian life's all about? To know God better, deeper, and to give Him the worship that He alone deserves. That will happen in our lives as we study His ways.